Uh, we want to look in the Word of God at the book of Numbers again and chapter 16. I'm not usually in this slot, so is it about 1210 I'm aiming for? Is that? 12, sorry, 1110. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's been that kind of morning for me. Sorry about that. Numbers chapter 16, 1110. I've had dreams about preaching that long, but I've never tried it. 1110, very good. Numbers 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all your company, put fire in them, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself and to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them? And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you, and are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? Verse 12, And Moses sent to Dathan and Abiram the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should be acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present from the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron, let us each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you will bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. And that's precisely what happened, as we'll see. Now we saw the great national failure at Kadesh Barnea in chapters 13 and 14, when the leaders of a generation of people basically said, we don't trust the Lord to deliver the inheritance that he's promised. And God, of course, levied a heavy judgment upon them. 
These were people that were not ignorant of God. Over and over, God had revealed himself to them. He had been working among them. He had been doing unparalleled signs and wonders to give them tangible evidence of the reality of his person. And in spite of this, they kept testing God and kept testing God and kept pushing God until finally God says, all right, I get it. You don't believe in me. Judgment is going to fall on you. And yet we saw yesterday that grace came in where there was tremendous failure. Not grace for those men who sinned that terrible lasting sin of unbelief. Because they were past the point of no return, where they sinned against the Lord and apostatized from the Lord, turned from him and said, no, we don't want you. We want our own leader to take us back to Egypt. Let's just hit the reset button and start all over on our own. And because of that, judgment overtook them. But God said, I won't wipe out the nation. What's more, I'll bring in their children. I'll bring in another generation into the promised land. And we saw the beautiful intercessory prayer that was made on behalf of the nation by that godly man, Moses, who really understood priesthood. He understood the things that Brother Steve has been telling us about, the approach before God and how to bring the needs of God's people before God and his throne of grace. And Moses pleaded, consistent with the character and promises of God, to have God do what God always delights to do, to pardon and show mercy. And so that next generation inevitably would come in. God would work with them and mold them and train them and sometimes chasten them. But eventually in chapter 26, you get another census. The new generation is going to go into the land under Joshua, the man appointed or marked out at least in chapter 27. Now, after that, chapter 15 begins to talk about when you're in the land So if we didn't get the point at the end of chapter 14 that God has said, you know, I am going to pardon the nation. I am going to show mercy to the children of these miscreants. I'm going to bring them into the land. If we didn't get that point, chapter uh, 15 rather tells us when you're in the land, here are the sacrifices you're to offer. Because God says, I know I'm going to bring you into the land, number one. But your possession of the land is only as valuable or as good as the work that I do through the one I'm going to provide. That's what those sacrifices speak to. To the one that would be given from the Father, the Lamb of God. And how do we know Israel is one day going to obtain the promises? Not because Israelites are better than anybody else on the face of the earth. Any more than we in the church can say, you know, we're going to rule and reign with Christ because we were smarter than those other dumb sinners, you know? We were somehow better. We were somehow more morally fit. (laughs) No, the history of Israel and the history of the church are quite parallel in this, that we repeatedly show our tendency to wander, to fail, to sin, not to do it God's way. And when something happens that is the right way, God has his fingerprints all over that. It's God's working. It's God being merciful to us. It's God leading us back. It's God chastening and preparing his people. So the fact that they're going to get into the land and exist in the land is undergirded by sacrifice. 
Having said that, the second half of chapter 15 is telling us that to be in that land is to be under the law of God. That this isn't a lifestyle where God saves them and tells them, now please go live how you want to live. No, God has a character, standards, and he wants those standards to be replicated in his people. And so there he had the Mosaic law, which was not a way of salvation for them, because even in giving it, God knew they wouldn't keep it. God knew they would break it. Think of it like a spiritual thermometer. Now, I'm not a physician nor the son of a physician, so I can't give you those great, uh, you know, I, Steve Price is kind of like the George Clooney of the assemblies. You know, we ER, we feel like we're there, right? This is a very dumbed down medical illustration. But you can imagine if you heard that I have a headache, and I do, if you heard, pray for me, if you heard that I have a headache and, and you came over to uh, my room at Curry Village and you said, Keith, I heard you're unwell today. And I say, yes, that's true. <laughs> but you look and you see there that I've got a thermometer in my mouth. And, and you say, well, uh, what is it, Keith? Do you have a fever? And I say, oh, no, I, I've got this thermometer in my mouth because it's going to make me feel better. It's going to take care of my headache. You might look at me there in my stocking cap and my nightgown and so forth in the bed. And you might say, oh, Keith, you're sicker than we thought. <laughs> because that thermometer has no analgesic properties or any healing quality to it. The thermometer merely tells you you're sick. It will tell you that you have a fever, perhaps. And in my case, I don't think I do. I just have a headache. But anyway, what's that? That's right, brother. Amen. Got to be thankful. And there was some doubt maybe earlier in the week. In any case, the law was like that, you see. It didn't heal. It didn't save. It showed the people that they were sick. But nonetheless, it also outlined for Israel that God has standards, that God is a righteous being, that God cares about morality, that he is an ethical being, and that he wants them to enjoy the land. And the best way to enjoy the land is to enjoy God and do things his way. Not to follow Frank Sinatra theology and do it my way, which is kind of our default position as human beings. So there's a story in the second half of chapter 15 about a man who gathers sticks on the Sabbath. He basically wantonly disregards the claims of God, says, well, I don't care. You know, I've got to get on with my life. And, and God, well, I suppose he's there, but I don't care about his day or what he said. And this man is put to death for that crime. And the children of Israel are instructed to put this blue thread, this tassel on their garments to remember the law of God, to remember that they're the people of God under his orders. Now that's very important contextually because then we open chapter 16 and we see some very important people. We see Korah, who is a prominent Levite from the people that are greatly privileged. You know, Moses even references this. We read it. He says to you, uh, to Korah, isn't it enough for you that God has separated you and given you the privileges of the things of the tabernacle? And if you look at the different families of the Levites, the sons of Aaron were the priests. That was marked out by God. 
But the book of Numbers earlier on tells us that among the clans of Levi, the Kohathites were the people that carried the holy vessels of furniture from the tabernacle. They carried the brazen altar. They carried the laver. They carried the golden altar of incense and the table of showbread and the lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat atop it. And you had the Merarites as well. And you had the... um, Gershonites, and those were involved with carrying both the sockets and the foundations, sort of the infrastructure of that tabernacle, the boards, and also the tents, which formed the very sanctuary itself. So here are people in that dispensation who can get as close as anyone in Israel to the things of God, barring the priests themselves. And even among the priesthood, the Bible reminds us that the high priest could only go into the presence of God once a year, according to Leviticus 16. It's that day that Brother Steve was talking about yesterday, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the book of Hebrews also references that. So you have to understand that God marks out a way of approach. And yet here are these people that are important leaders, an important Levite leader, and along with him, a coalition of people from the tribe of Reuben. Now, Reuben was the first son of Jacob. So according to the Eastern way of doing things, he's supposed to be the one who takes leadership in the family. And yet, unfortunately, he was a disappointment. Genesis 49, when Jacob is prophesying about his sons and the different tribes, he says, Reuben, you're unstable as water. And unfortunately, you find that not only in Reuben's life, but many times in his descendants, that they're kind of wishy-washy. They go with the wind, whichever way the wind is blowing, that's the way they go. So here are people from the first tribe, so to speak, by chronology at least, they're descendant of the firstborn son, and yet they're aligning themselves with a coalition that is standing against God's chosen representatives. And you'll see with that that verse 2, if we didn't get the point yet, calls these men 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. Nabobs and luminaries, if there ever were any. Muckety mucks, big wigs, the big cheese. You get the idea? These are important folk. But let's remember that the 10 unbelieving spies back in chapter 13, they were leaders from their tribes too. And often in the book of Numbers, you see leadership failing because ultimately it's not about what you may be naturally. It's not about your family and how well-connected. The Spanish use the phrase enchufado, how plugged in you are. Yeah, I see Beatriz gets that. So uh, it's not about how, how you can network and how many connections and how important your family is in the community. Nor is it your natural intelligence quotient or your natural abilities and talents. That's not what gives you value in the things of God. What gives you value in the things of God is true spirituality, submission to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to do it your way. That's what gives value. Isn't that wonderful? Because it opens the way for absolute nobodies to be somebodies. You know, Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are called. 
one of the dear sisters of a bygone age who was from the British royal family, a born-again believer, she said, I'm thankful for that word, many. It doesn't say not any. God has saved high-born royal people. God has saved CEOs and CFOs and generals and people that are leaders in society. But unfortunately, so many other times, such people that have natural advantages, that have position, that have rank, they don't think they need the Lord. Or they think, like these men thought, we can come on our own terms. Now, you have to understand, when you read this as a New Testament believer, hearing what we've heard so far this week about the priesthood of all believers in the New Testament, you might immediately read what Koath says and think, well, what's so bad about that? I mean, in a sense, isn't the congregation of Israel holy? And in a sense, wasn't it God's intention? Didn't he say in Exodus that I want you to be a kingdom of priests? Yes, But Koath is conveniently omitting the failure at the incident of the golden calf, isn't he? He's conveniently omitting the fact that not only did Israel fail God in worshiping that golden calf, and and on another occasion when they saw God's glory on Sinai and the lightnings and the thunderings and the fire, they said, Moses, you go talk to God. We won't. Thank you very much. Moses, you go up. You be the mediator. When they saw that and ceded their priestly responsibility, both by their own fear and also their own sinful neglect in turning aside after the golden calf, at that incident, Moses called out, who's on the Lord's side? And it was the Levites that stood up. And the Levites and the sons of Aaron, particularly among them, became the priestly tribe. And those sons of Aaron became the ones that God said, these are going to be the priests. They're the holy ones because they've been called by God to this position. Now, Hebrews chapter 5 makes this point. It says, you know, people, it's becoming a priest isn't about saying, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, you know, the the really cool people, they get to be policemen, right? You know, and then you got a couple other cool people that get to work in IT, okay? Uh, They get those jobs. Okay, what's left? Well, I don't know. Being a priest, that seems like pretty steady work, isn't it? Uh, uh, Maybe I'll go to priestly school and I'll get my BA in priestly studies and then I'll go on and get my MPA, you know, my master's of priestly administration. And I'll go on and get my doctorate in priesthood and I'll be a priest. No, 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 says Hebrews 5. No man takes this honor to himself. You have to be called by God even as God called Aaron and said, you're going to be a priest. You know, even the Lord Jesus, Hebrews 5 says, didn't take this honor to himself. But the Father said to him, we've heard it quoted in Psalm 110 and in the book of Hebrews again. Hebrews 5 says, he swore to him with an oath. He said, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Think of it. If ever anyone was important enough to say, I want to be a priest, would it not be the Son of God himself? Would it not be the one who came and served as the perfect servant of the Lord and always did the will of the Father? Would we not think that he could then rightfully assume the role of priest? Well, of course he could, but he didn't do it 
just saying, I want to do it. He did it as called by God the Father. So when Brother Steve tells us rightly that the New Testament tells us that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who's been born again by faith in Him and has that indwelling Holy Spirit is said by 1 Peter chapter 2 and Revelation 1 and other passages to be a priest and to exercise in priestly ministry. This is not something the church thought up. This is not something men can confer on you. This is something that God calls you to and it's an immense privilege. And every time that we bow our knees in prayer and go to God with no other mediator than the Lord Jesus Christ, or every time we meet together to pray and to worship and to praise the God of heaven, or every time we go forth as royal priests, his emissaries, and break the bread of life to people, share the word of God with them. We have to say to ourselves, I have an incredible privilege that I don't deserve, something that's given to me by grace, something that I've been called to. Therefore, I dare not neglect this. I dare not leave this aside. This is what God has called me to. Now, instead, Kohath and his friends said, you know, we're sufficiently important in and of ourselves. We think as long as we're diligent and sincere, we can approach God in the way we want to approach him. How modern a notion. You know, Koath would have fit, or rather Korah would have fit right in the 21st century, wouldn't he? Because today people say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I mean, here I am in the Yosemite Valley, and I just, I'm at one with nature. Look, look at the trees, look at the leaves, look at the pine needles, look at Yosemite Falls and, and Glacier Point and all these lovely things. And, oh, I just feel one with nature. And this is my cathedral. This is my God. I can come to God by worshiping the creation. God says, absolutely not. God says that humanity's problem, according to Romans 1, is that when they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. And what did that lead to? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know, I love to give my children presents. I really, really, really enjoy giving people presents. That's no one more than my children. I go to the store. The dollar store is our favorite one, the Dollar Tree in our town. And I go in there and I look and I say, oh, here's a, a submachine gun. You know, you pull the trigger on this and you can hear submachine gun sounds. When I was Micah's age, I would have loved that. And I say, he's going to love it. I can't wait to see him with it. Or here, here's this lovely little doll. I know one of my daughters would love that doll. You know, I'm not into dolls myself, but I know how much they play with them for hours and put different clothes on them and do things with dolls. I'm going to give them the doll. And I get really excited about it. And Naomi will tell you, I can't wait. You know, I don't want to put it away and wait till their birthday or wait till Christmas. I find some excuse. I say, do you know it's a holiday in Zimbabwe? We ought to celebrate, you know. Here's a gift. And so I bring out the gift. <laughs> and yet, thanks be to God, this has never happened. But 
What would you think if I came home one day and there's Micah playing with his submachine gun and there are my girls playing with their dolls and playing with the different things I've gotten for them and they don't want to talk to me. They don't even want to look at me. And I speak to them and, and they don't reply. Hmm. And I think, well, they're just, you know, in their own little world. I'll tap them on the shoulder. And they say, go away. You're bothering us. You're getting in the way of our enjoyment of these lovely things. These wonderful gifts that we have here. Can't you just go away? Just leave us alone to play with these gifts? That would be awfully sad, wouldn't it? I'm thankful they've never even come close to doing anything like that. That would break my heart. And yet human beings do it every day of the week. When they take the gifts of God, this creation, our very lives, the skills and talents, the days that when we were in our mother's womb, according to Psalm 139, they were already written in God's book that by his providence, he's appointed this lifespan for us. And that the goodness of God is working and trying to arrange circumstances in our lives to bring us inevitably to the reality of who God is and who we are, sinners that need a Savior. And as Romans 2 puts it, the goodness of God, knowest thou not that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. God gives us these gifts God creates us. God gives us life. God says, I'm not far from you. I've even appointed the nations their bounds in Acts 17. I put the nations in the places where they are on purpose in the desire that they might seek after God and feel after God if perhaps they might find him. And God didn't just leave it for us to try and seek him. The Lord Jesus said, Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came seeking us. And yet still, many people say, No, I'll come my own way. Thank you very much. I mean, many roads lead to God, right? Doesn't matter which way you come as long as you're sincere, as long as you're a good person. Now listen, we've lived long enough in this age to see that there are certain types of religious belief that tell people to destroy other people, right? There are people that fly airplanes into buildings in our world and they think they're doing God a service. You know, the Lord Jesus predicted that. He said, the time is coming when people will kill you and they think you're doing God a service. Specifically that they'd kill believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's happening all over the world. Do you not hear the headlines? In Nigeria, in Algeria, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Africa, sometimes probably even in North America. Believers being killed for no other reason than they worship the true and living God, which doesn't match somebody else's idea of God. And we live in this world where there are dangerous, false spiritual ideas. You know, God made it very simple for us. He said there's one way of salvation. It's not me saying that. The Lord Jesus said it in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto me. But, uh, uh, sorry. Let me try that again. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to the Father but by me. Is that more or less it? Thank you. In any case, God makes it very simple for us. He says, faith in the Lord Jesus is the way. Acts 4.12 says, there's one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Speaking about that name of Jesus. You see, the context there is that the apostles of the Lord Jesus were going out and they were preaching Christ. And people said, you know, we don't care that you heal. That's good. Go ahead. Be philanthropic. Do charity. Help people. We don't care that you're taking care of the poor. We don't have a problem even with preaching and telling people to be more spiritual or to love God or to, to be better. We get all that. But would you please stop doing it in the name of Jesus Christ? That's what we want. Don't preach or teach in this name anymore. You can be religious, you can be spiritual, you can do what you want to do in that frame of of reference, but don't do it in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. And yet, they said, we can't help but speak of the things that we've seen of God. We have to obey God rather than men, was their attitude. In recent years, we've seen in the various wars that have been going on, as we always see in wartime, great acts of heroism. And I remember reading about a man in Afghanistan, I think he was a Marine, who was going into one of these places where they were, it might have been Iraq, actually, I'm not sure if it was Afghanistan, but he was going into, they were going into these different houses where they thought the insurgents were, and they were sort of fighting from house to house. And as he and some of his comrades in his squad were in this place, a grenade came in. And instinctively, as I understand they are trained to do, this man threw himself on the grenade and took the blast and died for his comrades. And that, of course, has happened in every war where we've had grenades. And I mean, you can go back into the ancient world and see similar types of things. Soldiers laying down their lives to protect their comrades. It's a noble courageous thing that human beings justly celebrate as being a virtuous deed. I thought about that man's family, and I think in the case I was reading about, there were people that had nominated this man posthumously for the Medal of Honor, and there was controversy as to whether it was going to be awarded. And the man's family was lobbying the different powers that be to give this man this honor. And it sort of set my imagination going about what, that, what those parents must think whose son died. And I wondered, if you were in that squad and this man dove on the grenade for you and you came back home and you ran into that man's parents in the street somewhere and they said, we're the parents of Sergeant so-and-so. You remember the man who was in your squad who died because of the grenade. And the man would stand there and say, you know, I don't know. I served with a lot of people over there. I mean, there were a lot of guys. I mean, from basic training on, just all kinds of other troops. And I, I, oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, the, oh, yeah, the guy who got killed, he threw himself on a grenade. <laughs> sure, I, I remember him. You know, every once in a while, he comes to my mind. 
What would you think as that boy's parents? Would you say, what do you mean every once in a while? You wouldn't be standing here if it weren't for him. Oh, please don't be melodramatic. Let's not exaggerate it. You know, I'm a United States Marine. I made it through Paris Island. (laughs) I made it through rigorous training. I made it through very many battles. And because of my training and because of my acumen, my mental toughness and, and my savvy in battle, my skills came into play in my training. And that's how I survived. What would you think of that? Your skills came into play? No. Had nothing to do with your skills. Had nothing to do with your training. Had nothing to do whether you're a good or a bad Marine. It had to do with the man who threw himself on the grenade. That's what saved your life. Whether you want to admit it or not, that's what you'd say to someone. Now, I really would find it hard to believe that anyone would be so callous like I said, toward their comrade who they saw die in front of them. And yet I know for a fact that many human beings are that callous toward God's Son. Because the reason there's only one way of salvation, the reason Gautama Buddha won't do it for you, or the Vedic writings of the Hindus, or following Islam, or following any other belief system, or worldview, or philosophy, or none at all, if you're a humanist or an atheist or a naturalist. The reason it won't wash with God, the reason he won't accept that and say it's okay, is because the Bible says in Romans 8, he spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things, Paul says. See, he gave the best he possibly could give. You say, poor Keith, he's got a headache. He forgets the gospel meetings tonight. (laughs) Oh, oops. And yet, as believers, those of us here who know the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us here who say, yes, the reason I call myself by the name of the Lord Jesus is because he's the one who died for me. He's the one who purchased me. He's the one who rose again for my justification. He's the one who gives me eternal life as a free gift. Not what I am, but who he is. Not what I've done, but what he's done. Because of all of that, I come by the way he's appointed. I come by way of him, his mediatorship, his high priesthood. I come as a priest under the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I willingly and gratefully worship and praise and pray because the Lord has given so much to call me to that position and to give me that gracious standing. So as a believer in Christ, to be a priest is a privilege I value a privilege that I don't want to neglect, even though I sometimes do. A privilege that time and time again, I want to be reminded that this cost God even the blood of his own, as Acts 20 says. His own son who laid down his life for us. And that's what's so wrong about Korah, and that's what's so wrong about anyone that tries to go to God any other way. Because it says the cross is nothing. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2. He said, if justification is by the law, then Christ died in vain. If somebody wants to come to God by any other way, 
They are in essence saying Jesus Christ is a nullity. He is null and void. He doesn't matter. The Son of God who gave his life on the cross, that may have been a sad incident in history, it may have been a tragedy, but it is nothing to me if you try to come to God by some other way. Oh, I trust we couldn't stand before the cross and see the Son of God by faith dying there and ever say that to God and ever turn away from that but say, no, we'll come by the way God's appointed. No wonder God opened up the earth. You know what Korah got for his troubles? A one-way ticket with a bullet, so to speak, straight to hell. The earth swallowed him up. He went right down to the pit. He and all those who were allied with him. Oh, wait a minute. Numbers 26.11 tells me, the sons of Korah died not. Why did that happen? Well, The Bible doesn't directly say, but I infer, since Moses said in number 16, get away from the tents of these men, separate yourself from them, that some of Korah's children did just that. They said, we don't want to perish. We don't want to go to hell. We don't want to be under the judgment of God. And they were spared. And not only were they spared, you'll know from the book of Psalms that there are something like 10 or 11 Psalms that bear the title for the sons of Korah, or maybe it can be translated of the sons of Korah. Did they write these or were they written for them to sing or to instruct them? I don't know. But the sons of Korah are there in the Psalter. They're part of the worship of the people of God. Here are people that were condemned that were on the precipice, that were about to be swallowed up by the pit. But they fled that wrath. They went God's way. They said, I want to go your way, Lord. I want to depend on your provision. And God brought them in to the worship of his house. It can be so for you today. It's just the same, you know. Every believer says, I was condemned. I was under judgment. I deserved hell. But I have a righteous standing before God and I'm a priest solely by grace and solely by what the Lord Jesus has done for me. May we indeed appreciate our great Savior. Father, we're thankful today for the Lord Jesus and all he is and all he has done and what he's made us in himself. And yet, Father, we're well aware that there are people all around us that don't know him and probably people at this conference in this condition. Father, we pray that they would see there's only one way, a way that was so costly, only one person could make it, could pay it, that thou didst pay it through thy Son, that he was offered up by the eternal Spirit, and that, therefore, it's only in Christ that someone can be saved. But we're thankful, Father, that this one way is offered to all, that we don't need to discriminate today and say, no, the gospel's not for you. We can preach to anyone we meet. We can tell every living soul we meet that God loves you and wants to save you, that Christ died for you according to the scriptures. We just pray that many more today would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus unto salvation. We ask it in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.